You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, today as we continue in our Being Human, Being Human series, I'll try to get it right, Being Human series, so week two of our Being Human series, it would be so helpful to have your Bibles open. So we're going to be looking at a few different sections, Genesis and then going right to the end of Revelation. But if you open up a the uh, Genesis chapter 2, that would be really helpful. And there's also an outline on the back of the news with translation points there in English, Dinka, Korean, and simplified Chinese, if that's of help to you. But right now, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the extraordinary nature of your world. We, Lord, thank you so much that you have created us and that in your wisdom and in your kindness you have given us bodies. Lord, please help us to understand the goodness of our bodies, the limits of our bodies and the future of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Our physical bodies and our physical world are extraordinary. When you were growing up, perhaps at school or at home, you had access to one of those plastic human body models. You know the one that I mean, the type where you can remove the outer layer and the muscles and the organs and perhaps even the skeleton. And if that didn't leave you feeling squeamish or totally grossed out, it was extraordinary to get a glimpse of the complexity, the intricacy and the beauty of the human body. And of course, as physical beings, we don't live in some sort of isolated vacuum, but we're embedded in the context of a physical universe. We are equipped with senses of touch, touch, taste, sound, smell and sight to relate to the physical world around. Part of being human means we are embodied beings in an embodied world. Yet... We often have a strange or even an uneasy relationship with our bodies and the physical world. Make too much of it, we end up worshipping it and grabbing at it for more. Make too little of it, we end up thinking our bodies or the world just don't matter. Not too long ago now, there was a TV series called Years and Years, Uh, This show tracked the fictional day-to-day story of the Lyons family who lived in London in the not-too-distant future. In the series, they especially considered how changes, including technological changes, shaped their life and the society of which they were part. It actually really wasn't that unbelievable. Part of the story was about their youngest daughter, the youngest daughter, Bethany, who felt so uncomfortable in her body in her skin, that what she really longed for more than anything else was to become transhuman. That is, she longed to escape the physical confines of her body and instead have her identity, her personality, her very being digitally captured and somehow uploaded so that she could solely exist in a virtual world in perpetuity or at least until someone switched all the servers off. Now, that might sound pretty outlandish, but there's actually people working towards this very aspiration right now. Is that the sort of hope that we hold for humanity? 
digital avatars wafting around in a digital world? We might say, of course not. Yet sometimes the great hope for heaven has been presented as something not too different from this. A hope of sort of simply shedding our bodies and living in some sort of spiritual realm alone. But that's not the Christian story of the Bible. We are embodied beings living in a physical world awaiting a physical new creation. Our understanding of that will shape what we do with our bodies, how we treat other people in the world, the sort of future we anticipate, and what we make the object of our praise. So let's explore this in three parts today. The goodness of our bodies, the limits of our bodies, and the future of our bodies. So first, the goodness of our bodies. Let's pick up at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We saw last week that we're made in the image of God, but here we see that God makes us with dust and breath. Remember, this isn't God's step-by-step guide on how to create a world. It's so poetic in form. We see that not only is our tangible physical existence part of our very being, it's part of what it means to be human, but God was the one who breathed life directly into us. That's incredibly humbling. We're from the dust. We're part of God's created order. We don't exist apart from God's created order. And the life that we have also comes from him. We are different from the rest of the creation, but we are also part of God's creation. You know, humans are really quite clever. We are capable of so many extraordinary things. Think about it right now. Some people are even trying to help us be interplanetary species. But because we are from dust and breath, we are not only dependent on the physical world that God has created, but our life ultimately is dependent and owes its very existence to God alone. God didn't just write an app or design a virtual world. We're not bots running some code. But God created a whole new thing. He brought matter and energy into being. When we read dust, consider how God brought about every single elementary building block of the entire universe. You know, over the centuries, people have theorised and observed what might be the, the tiniest, the most fundamental building blocks of the universe, only to time and time again discover that there's even more and more and more behind the atomic curtain. Atoms, elements, molecules, along with all the ways in which they interact. The way that we experience the world with light, light, heat, touch, sound and taste. You know, seeing the glory of a sunrise, the sound of a laugh, the gentle touch of a loved one's hand, the warmth of a fire, the taste of your favourite meal, the smell of coffee. Now, these are all part of the, of the goodness of the way that God has created us and planted us as physical 
beings in the world. And not only are we connected to the world of which we are part, but our origin story shows us the way in which even our bodies are connected to God. Whenever I've had to do CPR training, you know, first aid training, uh, I always find the resuscitation part a bit confronting. But here the image is that the God of the universe blows life into our nostrils. So intimate. So many religions and ancient ways of thinking suppose that the physical world is actually repulsive. What really matters are the, the spiritual, the, the heavenly realms alone. And the world which we inhabit, well, that's just an afterthought or an accident or something to be escaped. But either way, they would suppose the gods wouldn't want to get involved. Well, that's the opposite of the biblical account. Not only is embodiedness part of God's vision for us, it was his intentional action, but he even gets his hands dirty in the dust and breathes life into our lungs. Yet, sometimes we can have a strange relationship with our bodies. There's probably few of us who, if standing naked in front of a mirror, would actually be happy with what we see. So often we can feel embarrassed or ashamed or inadequate. Perhaps you don't even need to look, but you feel the physical limits and a sense of that dissatisfaction with your body continuously. If so, hear these three big endorsements, God's big yes to our physical nature. The, the first yes, not only did God create us, but he said it was good. Over and over again, God's ordering of creation is punctuated with the declaration, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Yes, our bodies experience the effects of the fall, we're going to get to that soon, but there is something fundamentally good in God making us physical. God isn't just interested in your heart or your mind or your soul or your will, but he's also interested in your body. It's why the psalmist could sing, for you created my most inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. You are his works. I know that full well. Second, yes, not only did he say it was good, but he himself became human. That's a pretty glowing endorsement. As Tertullian put it, God's son was suffused with blood, scaffolded of bones, threaded with sinews, intertwined with veins, competent to be born and to die. Whilst the myths of other gods wouldn't be seen dead messing around with humanity, the son of God, who could not die, became human in order that he would die for us. Time and time again, we see throughout the gospel accounts Jesus so tenderly attending to and affirming our bodily humanity as he encountered those in need. It was scandalous at the time. And as people encountered those, as Jesus encountered those people in need, he never said, oh dear, your physical problem is really terrible, but don't worry, all this physical stuff is just secondary or it's just an illusion, it doesn't matter. 
No, we see his, his compassion for our physical needs and our ultimate needs coming rushing together. We see them rushing together as he fed, touched, listened, and healed. God became human in Christ, and he remains human forever. The third yes, not only did God become human, but he dwells by his spirit in his children. Paul says, we're like jars of clay, so we're, we're fragile and we're made from the earth, dust. Yet in God's extraordinary generosity, he comes in power and resides in us as the treasure of treasures. That's the goodness of our bodies. Uh, second, the limits of our bodies. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, the dust you are, and to dust you will return. The devastating catastrophic effects that sin has on the entirety of creation is ever so confronting. We experience that. We witness that. God designed us to be dependent on him and on his world. That's in part what the tree of life from which we were to eat is, is all about. We ought to embrace our dependence on the God who sustains. But of course, that's not how it plays out. As humans effectively say, we don't need you, God. I want to be the God and the ruler of my own life. We begin living a lie. We become trapped in the impossible situation, the impossible position of sustaining and saving ourselves. We cannot make it on our own any more than the two-year-old who threatens to run away from home. And the result is that as sin enters the world... All of creation feels the effects. In our bodies, the fragility and the pain we experience, in how we relate to each other, of the way that God's entrusted rule becomes distorted, in how we relate to the world, that even the soil of the ground will be difficult to tend. It's, it's totally messed up. We lament and we grieve our part in it. But Paul describes it like this. We, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That the whole of creation feels the effect of our sin. That's pretty obvious when we look around. We were entrusted with so much responsibility of God's creation to rule for good, but as we took something that was not ours, the damage extends to all that was entrusted to us. Death and decay enter the world. From dust you are, and to dust you return. 
That's the, that's the big picture of the effects of our brokenness in a physical world. It's why simultaneously we can, can love and delight in God's creation, uh, yet grieve and long for things to be different, and at the same time struggle to discern what it means to be faithful with our bodies in a broken world. Uh, two of the ways that we can feed the brokenness is what we do with the over-desires of our bodies and how we respond to the limitation of our bodies. Over-desires of the body are just nurturing longings in a way that is out of step of God's plans. So, for example, food is good. Food is really good. Eating is part of how God created us. But over-desire food and make it the object of your life, well, it's going to turn into something altogether different. You know, sex is good. God created sex to be shared in the context of marriage. But over-desire it, and you'll seek it out in all sorts of ways, doing all sorts of damage, out of step with God's plans. Now, let me be really clear. The fact that we have bodies, and that those bodies have limits, is not necessarily a sin. The fact that we get tired, need to eat, drink, breathe, relate, and interact... They're all part of God's created order. But we must not make those things into ultimate things. One of the biggest over-desires in our culture, which sometimes can be completely invisible to us, is actually materialism. You know, we're often rightly so concerned about different types of moral conduct, yet we can be completely blind to one of the biggest challenges of our culture which is grasping for and holding on to material things. Instead of using all that God has entrusted us for his purposes, we can make those things as we hold on to them the very centre of our purpose. And that has all sorts of effects on our hearts, our priorities of where we invest our time. But the grasping of more also spills out and affects the whole world. It affects the poorest of the world. And of course, it affects the world itself. Recognising that our bodies are broken, we resist feeding the over-desires. But we also pay attention to how we respond to our bodily limitations. Now, often when I encounter my physical limitations, like I'm tired, I often feel like that this is some sort of constraining bear hug, restricting me, holding me back, when, when actually some of those limits are just part of how God has created me. They're not like a constraining bear hug, but more like a warm embrace inviting me to trust that God is God and I am not. When Patrice and I lived in Noosa about a decade ago, uh, one day I was riding my bike and uh, bounced off the front of a four-wheel drive. It wasn't really the best day, but I broke my wrist and it was really miraculous that nothing worse happened. When I saw the surgeon, I said to him, not really as a question, but more as a comment, it's fine for me to drive, right? He said, you cannot drive a car for four weeks. Now, when I heard that, I didn't actually really like the answer, so I thought I'll reframe the question. I said, but it's okay just to drive with one hand. And he immediately responded, it doesn't matter how many ways you ask this question, the answer will always be the same. <laughs> you cannot drive the car for four weeks. So picture this. Here I am, battered, bruised, cuts to my face, 
my arms, my legs, my forearm in a plaster, my arm in a sling, and I'm still finding it difficult to accept the limitations of my condition. It was such a minor inconvenience in the scheme of things, so small compared to so much of what others face, yet it actually kind of shows the battle within. And I suspect I'm not alone. Now, there are certainly times in life we must persevere under pressure. There's no doubt about that. But when that persevering serves to deny the limitations of our body, it is a recipe for growing in self-dependence and, and even resenting or even despising our dependence on God and others. All of the physical world has been subjected to the effects of human sin. We feel the effect of that, some more than others, more pronounced in different seasons of life. How we long for when that won't be the case. But now how we respond to those over-desires and those bodily limitations really matters. That's the goodness of our bodies, the limits of our bodies, and finally, the future of our bodies. So let's pick up Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Every tear wiped away. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. There are so people, many people in this community alone who I know who have endured all sorts of pain and suffering, some for very extended periods of time, some for the entirety of their lives, some right now. I am so thankful for their faithful witness amidst such pain. But how thankful I'm also that that is not the end. This isn't just a vision for humanity, but for the entirety of God's creation. When we hear this summary from Revelation chapter 21, it can sound like a nice idea, but when we're confronted, really confronted, by the reality of death, it's when these words really begin to take a grip. Just yesterday, we had the funeral for Eric Pratt, beloved memory, uh, member of our community. And it was at his funeral that we heard these very words from Revelation chapter 21 read aloud. And I have to tell you that in the, the face of death, in the grip of grief, as witness the grief of those 
whom loved him most, like his wife Evelyn, wife of 70 years. It's in the face of that that we can rejoice in the goodness of this promise. Death is painfully real, but for those who trust in Jesus, it is not the end. For we trust in the one who's not just chipping around the problem, but he's overcome completely the root cause. In Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explains that not only does Jesus' resurrection guarantee ours, but his resurrection is a, is a first fruit. It points to what it will be like for us. When it comes to imagining what new creation will be like, sometimes I think we can default to thinking that everyone's going to be 22, brilliant, buff and beautiful, you know, almost indistinguishable from one another or something like that. But if that's the case, I think it's a pretty boring vision. And actually, it probably says quite a lot about our own prejudices as, as well. Remember, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus still carried his wounds. You will still be you, but you'll be more you than you've ever been before. There's lots of debate about what will new creation be like, but this is what we know for sure. It will be good. The old broken order will be put away. The corruptible, now incorruptible. It will be forever. So the perishable will be imperishable. We'll eat from the tree of life again. It will be physical. And so the body will continue as a body. The world will be made new. And it will be with God. God's dwelling place is now among his people. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. We're not going to be wafting about, but serving God in new creation. So just begin to imagine, try to begin to imagine what the goodness of our world and our bodies would be like without the tarnish of sin, without the tarnish of decay, or without death. You know, when you begin to imagine that, you begin to taste, to see, to hear, to smell, to feel that which awaits those who trust in the Lord. It's why our dear sister Margaret, who went home to the Lord some years ago now, our dear sister Margaret, who was born blind from birth, that she could rejoice with the confidence that the first person she would ever see when she opens her eyes for the very first time is the Lord Jesus himself. We can struggle and feel the brokenness of our bodies and our world in so many ways. But in the beginning, God made them for good. And in the end... He'll restore them forever. It means, as Tom Wright puts it, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring great painting that's shortly going to be thrown onto the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are strange, though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your extraordinary generosity to us. We thank you for the world which you have created and that as you created us, you gave us bodies. 
Lord, please help us never to resent or despise that which you have created. Lord, how we are so sorry for the ways in which we turn away from you. Lord, we are so sorry for the ways in which our sin contributes to the brokenness of our world, of the way in which that spills out to affect others and creation itself. Lord, please help us not to continue in that path of brokenness, that we would not feed the over-desires of our body, nor resist limitations and look continuously to ourselves, but that we might look to you, trust in you, and depend on you as the one who's redeemed us through your Son. Lord, may our vision for the future that you have guaranteed through your Son's death and resurrection shape the way that we live for you today. In Jesus' name, Amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.